When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. This podcast contains explicit language. So that happened. President Barack Obama has kicked off 2016 by issuing a new set of executive actions intended to reduce the number of people who end up as casualties to America's gun culture. But it's an open question as to how significant and how lasting these orders will be. Joining us to discuss this is Connecticut Senator Chris Murphy. Meanwhile, out on the 2016 campaign trail, Hillary Clinton has launched some hot broadsides against Bernie Sanders and his Wall Street policies, which is kind of strange. It's not where Sanders is vulnerable. And if I recall correctly, Clinton is routing Sanders in most of the primary polls anyway. So why make these attacks at all? We will try to figure that out. Finally, for food stamps beneficiaries, 2016 could be a troublesome year, as the desire of lawmakers to kick people out of the program continues to run a few miles ahead of where the economic recovery really is. Now, hundreds of thousands of Americans face a new year of unexpected and unnecessary food insecurity. We'll talk with one person affected by these coming changes. I'm Jason Lincolns, with Huffington Post reporters Zach Carter and Arthur Delaney. We'll have all of this, plus we'll set the stage for President Obama's final State of the Union address. Here's what happened first. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to So That Happened. Yay. Your podcast about comforting you in a time of panic and disarray. I'm Jason Lincolns, editor of Eat the Press at the Huffington Post. And joining me, as always, is Arthur Delaney. Hi. Senior kid-having, dog-having reporter. Family man. Uh, and... Zach Carter, senior boxing cord toting reporter. <laughs> yep, I uh, I'm debuting my uh, my first uh, goatee on uh, on the sh- the show today. It looks so great. I hope everybody out there can appreciate that. If you were to see him, Land. you'd think he was evil, Zach. That's right. Yeah, exactly. From the <laughs> from the Star Trek universe, that's how they delineated the evil version of people. They came back with beards. You were like, whoa, what's what happened to Spock? Yep. You become edgy? Is he shopping at the food co-op? Nah, he's evil. Just evil. I think that's what my wife thinks, basically, about the whole the whole project so far. So, yeah. a lot of evil. But uh, but I like it, for now, at least. So, we're a week into what is to be a new year, 2016, a presidential election year. Got us thinking about what this year is going to look like. And right on time, Barack Obama about to drop his latest track on us, the State of the Union Address. Last time. It's the last album. Fa- yep. Farewell tour. It's the last one. Yeah, this is his, this is sent off. He's promised something new and different. I don't, 
exactly know what that means. In in the past, in his past states of the union, they, there's been a lot of continuity. And for the first several years, it was always, you know, you used to be, you could come out of high school, and if you were a decent, hardworking person, life would be good. But the rules have changed. And then last year, he said, America has just had a breakthrough year. And he talked about this couple getting married, a gay couple, and they were adopting a kid, and, like, everything was better. So what's he going to do this time? I think it's going to look a lot more like his um, his second inaugural address. Because uh, remember, you don't do a State of the Union the year, so you get inaugurated. Um, you just do an inaugural address. And his second one, he talked, he gave this big speech about the history of liberal ideas in American policy and politics. Um what what his administration was going to try to do to continue that legacy and what he thought the main challenges were for, for the country's future and how liberals were better attuned to addressing them than, than conservatives. And it was, a, it was one of the most liberal moments of his presidency. I think it's also one of his best speeches. Um, but uh, but it, wasn't, it wasn't really about, you know, here's this bill that I want to see passed because these people deserve a vote or this, this problem can be fixed this way. And I feel like we know... That there's not going to be any actual real legislating over the next year. That's just not probably going to happen. So I think he's going to try to frame his priorities and his accomplishments as something that that makes sense within a liberal tradition going back to to FDR. You know, uh, one of the things that always fascinates me about the State of the Union address is the extent to which we overrate it as a political phenomenon. Um, There are people who... Uh, treat the State of the Union address as some kind of titanic, game-changing, tide-turning moment in the political life of a president. This is where they've laid their marker down. This is the the yardstick against which they should be measured. Uh, People who don't... People who aren't Ron Fournier, basically. (laughs) Basically, adults. Adults understand that presidential speeches don't really move the needle unless the presidential speech is about stuff that most Americans already agree on. It's tough to like get up in front of Congress at a state of the union address and say, Hey, most of you guys don't believe in what I'm about to say, but I'm going to try to convince you that this is right. That is a really good recipe for ensuring that the tide turn against turns against what you want to do because you instantly politicize the thing you want that not everybody's on board with. A speech can help uh, plant the seed for support for things that have already widely supported. But we do tend to like think of these things as like super important, super big deal. In large part, I think that the political significance has been has been the sort of weird signaling back and forth between the president and the Republicans that's happened yeah. over the past few uh, few years, where it's it's basically a large meeting gathering of elites, and occasionally they they and, sort of like try to dominate or intimidate each other. Yeah, and it's and been may- very interesting to but watch. But there's some of the least memorable of Obama's maybe, speeches. Maybe this is what when Obama says this is going to be different. Maybe. Maybe this is what he means, because, yes, I tend to view the State of the Union address as how the president opens a round of negotiations with his opponents. He indicates these are the areas I'll be looking at to do things. These are the places we're potentially going to get into a fight. Get ready for that. Come at me with what you want to do here. Because we're going to spend the next year mm-hmm. talking about these issues. Get ready for that. What he's trying to do now, I think, is like set the stage for future liberal presidents, Hillary Clinton perhaps, 
Uh, and you can see this in kind of what he's done this week on guns, which we'll get into later. But a lot of what he did in this executive order about guns, I feel, and Jonathan Cohn wrote a story about this for us, that it wasn't so much about immediately affecting change on the ground today with regard to guns. The the gun thing, it was like a 2,000-word fact sheet. You're like, well, which part of this is actually Executive important? order. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it was the explanation for for the many things in there was very long because there's like more than two dozen individual actions. It was like a Vox planer masquerading as an executive. It's a real scattershot approach. Yeah. You can't tell what's supposed to stick. So I think you're right. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll get into this later on this podcast. I think he's going to talk a lot about international issues, though, and about about an international approach to, to politics and about a cooperative United States. Um I think those are the things that he can sort of point to as as accomplishments on foreign policy where, you know, on war policy, things have been kind of a wash at best for Obama. Right. Things things are a mess in the Middle East. He got the United States out of Iraq, but now we're kind of going back in and also in Syria and things are a disaster there. Um, but major accomplishments like the Paris Accord on climate, that is an internationalist move that brings the United States into the 21st century on science, shows real global leadership but not, not the country just going it alone. And I think the Iran agreement is something that, that sort of follows that pattern, acknowledging that we can't just assert our will blindly against people uh, and expect, expect to win. Um, so I, I, th- I think you'll, you'll, you'll see him talk a little bit about, about sort of an internationalist vision for American, for American you know, excellence abroad, for stabil- global stability. And I think you'll see him talk up his domestic policy achievements. That's the, Sorry, the Arthur, Paris Accord could really use some exposure because it's been totally absent from the top-level national policy debate that we're getting mostly thanks to Republican presidential candidates. Yeah, and it's... And, it's, it's, and the what, Democrats, they haven't talked about it much either. No, and it's a major deal. It's a huge, huge international agreement. Uh, you know, if if that if that thing actually is implemented and it occurs, that's a really big deal. And it's actually a problem for a Republican if, if Republicans elected if they want to undo it. They've got they've got to renege on a U.S. international treaty uh, or, or commitment. I guess it's not formally a treaty, but that, they'll have they'll have to make the U.S. look like a bunch of people who like lie to people um, to lie, lie to other countries in order to do that. They have to, have to damage our credibility abroad. So I, I think that's something he's going to want to point out. It would be interesting for him to articulate that vision. Only because it would have been cool if someone had articulated that vision to him maybe like 24 hours before we invaded Libya. <laughs> that, is, that is an issue. I believe Hillary Clinton is still, uh, right. still trying to figure out what to say about these She's things. She's still kind of on the hook for that uh, foo-for-raw. On, on foreign policy, do you think he'll once again say, we got this, don't worry? Because over, over the holidays, he repeatedly made speeches where he told people to enjoy themselves. Can I, can I just be dead honest again about the whole fight over how to defeat ISIS? <laughs> Once again, there are a number of people with a number of ideas. A lot of them are running for president. And the range and scope of what everyone's suggesting we do about ISIS is so narrow. It's so narrow. And a lot of the Republicans who fervently decry what Obama is doing about ISIS they don't have plans to do much more, if anything. Put a there's, bomb on it. There's a tiny, there's an art right Put now. Put two bombs on it. I Put don't a even carpet think, bomb that's not really like, a carpet Ted, bomb on Ted it. Ted Cruz is the only one who's literally said, I will make the sand glow with bombs. And just about everybody else is like, that's crazy. But even Ted but, Cruz walked that back. Of course, of course, walked because back Ted Cruz doesn't have a plan behind besides an incremental uptick in the number of airstrikes and the potential insertion of ground troops 
in the region. That's really it. There's no innovative solution to ISIS that any of these guys have come up with. Um, really, what it all comes down to is that there are people who are upset that Barack Obama doesn't become the Rock Obama and like rend his garments and scream at the sky about how evil ISIS is and give a bunch of like emotional, angry speeches about killing people. Uh, the fact that he's calm, cool, and composed about this and not seemingly in arrears at all times bothers some well, conservatives. He gave a, a speech this week in which he was not calm, cool, and composed. Yeah, and so, and the, yeah, but, but he, and cri- the, and he then cried. Then, so. And then I read a post in The Federalist saying that he should have cried more about ISIS. Yeah, he definitely should have cried more about ISIS. <laughs> I thought it was like, a great... What's, it's amazing to me. It's just like, like, I'm pretty sure that ISIS would be like, Dad, they did it. They cried. All right, we're done. We surrender. <laughs> you shed tears for us, and so we we get it now. Sorry, break down the caliphate. We get it now. His impromptu <laughs> moments. <laughs> his impromptu <laughs> moments in, in public speech making are so much more memorable than these big, grand, sweeping <laughs> states of the union. Like he wept, or he said, "If I had a son, he would have looked like Trayvon Martin." Can I just say, rest assured, there are people out there. Among the branch stupidians who believe that who believe that uh, Obama like fake the tears with an onion with like Ben Gay onion. <laughs> yeah. Just do Obama's tears melt steel beams, though, man. I bet they do. Yeah. What temperature do tears melt? Obama's tears <laughs> brought down the tower. I get wh- Damn. Wh- what I'm trying to say is his impromptu stuff is is uh, is good. And his it is. His, his reputation for being an orator yeah, is it, overblown big time. Well, but when he when he nails it, he nails it. I mean, his his yeah. speech in uh, in Charleston was outstanding. His speech in Cairo at the beginning of his presidency. was You mean outstanding. the the eulogy in Charleston yeah. where he Listen. unexpectedly <laughs> sang? Yep. And was it one of the most powerful moments of any this, American presidency in the last are, hundred years? Can I just say, you guys, <laughs> right now, you have like set such high expectations for the State of the Union address by talking about, like, impromptu moments and stuff. This won't be at all impromptu. That's what I'm trying to say. This is going to be boring, y'all. Right. We no, all know. no, some Republican is going to say something totally obnoxious and out of line. No, Obama's no, Obama's going to no. have to have a comeback. The biggest Republican outburst. Every year. No, the biggest Republican outburst in which South Carolina, Joe Wilson said, you lie, it wasn't a State of the Union. Can I just say, we've got to move on, but can I just say the one last thing I'll say about Obama's State of the Union history is that when when we write the history of Obama's speech writing and the people who wrote speeches for Obama, we will reflect on the number of really bad dad jokes that made it into Obama's well, speech. Well, they're all written by 20-something bros who, who get profiled right when they cash out. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. The dad jokes of President Obama. The, the glowing... With a forward from John Favreau. Yeah. <laughs> Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. Welcome back. This year, President Obama has kicked off 2016 uh, with some new executive orders on guns. It's not the first time he's done this, uh, and it's not the first time he's uh, expressed a great deal of concern about it. But what's the haps with these new executive orders? Uh, Basically, they do four very small things and two things that could be quite significant. Fund the FBI to hire more personnel to run background checks. The background checks would be required for those who purchase guns through trusts and legal entities. There would be stricter rules on reporting lost or stolen guns. And federal money would be made available to research technology 
that would make guns safer. In addition, the larger things that these executive orders would do is it would order the Department of Health and Human Services to finish crafting a rule that will give those running the background check system greater access to mental health records. And, perhaps most controversially, the government will issue guidance that will reduce the number of gun sellers who can currently do so without a federal license. There's a lot of popular notions about these bills, what they might do, what they could achieve. Some think that this is a more forward-facing attempt for Obama to set the stage for future presidencies. But there's an urgent need now. And here to talk about the urgent need is my colleague, Arthur Delaney. And as we've had him before, Connecticut Senator Chris Murphy. Senator, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. So, Senator Murphy, uh, first off, how do you like this stuff? And, uh, you know, how, how effective will some of these measures be? Well, it's bittersweet. Uh, You know, I I wish that Congress had taken action here, action that 90% of the American public supports, expanding background checks. But I do think what the president is doing is significant, um, in in large part because you have had this sort of wholesale migration of gun sales away from bricks-and-mortar stores to the Internet and to gun shows over the last 10 to 20 years, such that there are some estimates suggesting that the majority of gun sales today are happening without background checks because they're not happening in these uh, storefronts. And because there has been a a culture, essentially, of non-enforcement when it comes to individuals that are selling in those two forums, there are lots and lots of sellers that aren't doing background checks that probably should, that probably are, quote, engaged in the business, unquote, of selling firearms, which would require you to sell um, to do a background check. And, and so what I think is going to happen here is you're going to have all sorts of sellers of firearms in those two forums that are going to rush to start doing background checks because for the first time, they're going to feel some legal exposure. Uh, and so that may mean that you have um, tens, if not hundreds of thousands of guns that didn't have background checks apply that will now have criminal background checks. And, you know, when you get into that kind of scope, that saves lives. You know, that means that there are less illegal guns flowing onto the streets of, of Bridgeport and, and Chicago and, and Los Angeles. Um, and so I think it's important for that for, 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 for that uh, reason. But then I won't go too much into this now, but I think it's also important for the movement. I think the movement needed proof uh, that results could come from action. And you saw that in state legislatures and in referendums across the country. But at the federal level, I think this is important as a moment of empowerment for this growing anti-gun violence movement in Congress and outside of Congress. And I think that will have ripple effects that are positive. Senator Chris Murphy, after the Sandy Hook massacre a few years ago, in your home state of Connecticut, there was some momentum in the Congress for expanded background checks. It didn't go anywhere, but could you please explain how this is different than what had been proposed at that time? So what was proposed at that time was to essentially subject uh, almost all gun sales that happen at gun shows uh, and online, save for the really small one-off transactions in which someone is just getting rid of you know one or two weapons in their personal collection. Um, this is a much milder expansion um, in that it's just setting some parameters uh, around the existing definition of who has to sell a firearm. So right now the law is pretty vague. It says 
you have to be in the business of selling uh, firearms in order to be subject to a background check. So that very clearly exempts people that are just selling, uh, you know, a couple weapons a year. What the president has done is he's given some guidance to both law enforcement and to individual sellers as to, you know, what that actually means. So, you know, it's it's small things. Like if you have business cards, then that might mean that you're in the business of selling firearms. If you have a tax ID number, that might mean you're in the business of selling firearms. Um, it just starts to give some guidance to law enforcement so that they can decide um, as to whether somebody should be doing background checks or not. And there really wasn't any of this guidance prior to this. So that meant that the ATF and local law enforcement and local prosecutors just didn't ever really enforce the law um, when it came to these gun shows and, and internet sales. That's the that's the most important change that the president's making, and that's different than what was in the background checks bill, which you know essentially just changed the definition of who was selling um, and and made it much more blanket. My understanding is that uh, there's bipartisan support right now for uh, keeping guns out of the hands of people who suffer from mental illness uh who may not be uh may not may not be responsible for their own actions could end up hurting themselves or others uh and to my mind that suggests that there's need to be some sort of expansion of background checks these orders seem to contend with the mental health issue they seem to contend with uh, making sure there's stricter rules uh, governing uh, how to track guns that have been stolen or, or have strayed. Uh, it will hire more FBI uh, personnel to run this background check r- regime and keep sellers uh, at arm's length from selling guns to the wrong people. So I'm very confused why we've had Republicans talk about shutting, defunding the Justice Department. So you know, I think this is a moment where you call the Republicans bluff and the gun lobby's bluff, uh, because for you know three years since Sandy Hook, their response to new laws has been pretty simple. Their response has been, um, it's not about new gun laws, it's about enforcing the laws that are on the books, right? And I mean, that's just rote. They say it over and over and over again. Um, that's what the president is proposing here, right? That's the essence of this executive action. He is putting some flesh on existing law so that it can be more easily enforced. The law says if you're in the business of selling firearms, you have to do a background check. It's been really unclear what that means, so the president is making it more clear, thus the law can be enforced. He's proposing new resources to law enforcement, including the ATF, so that they can enforce the law. Um, And so, you know, Republicans are kind of left with nothing if they don't want new background check legislation, they don't want to ban dangerous weapons or high-capacity ammunition, and they don't want to actually enforce the laws that are on the books. And I, I, I think that's terrible policy, but I, I, I ultimately think it's really bad politics for them as well. At least they used to have this fallback of let's enforce the laws. That may now be out of their repertoire as well, and they will have nothing yeah, but that's to a, the American public. That's just weird. Okay, that's just weird to me. I mean, uh, uh, to suggest that they're getting nothing out of this suggests that they're only in it for the fight. This, these these uh, executive orders seem almost tailor-made uh, for a reality in which you have a liberal president uh, getting signals from what's possible in a Republican Congress. And it's 
sort of tailored to their needs. The emphasis on mental health, the emphasis on uh, expanding background checks. We're, there's no assault weapons ban here. Um, there's no taking guns away from people who own them here. Uh, in fact, there's really no pressure on Americans who want to go out and purchase a gun right now. They still can do that. This is a There's pressure being put on sellers and law enforcement, but it seems to me that the average American who wants to buy a handgun or a rifle is not affected by any of these executive orders. Am I missing something? No, you're not missing something. And, and of course, you know, that's the way I think the, the broad swath of the American public is going to look at this, you know, especially if they take any time to, you know, uh, pay attention to what this executive order really is. But, you know, unfortunately, we live in a world in which uh, beating the president up, no matter what he does and no matter how mild it is, is good politics for Republicans. And, you know, of course, you can go through almost every issue uh, and show how the president has uh, adopted in some way, shape or form a Republican way of thinking, healthcare being the primary example, uh, and has been chastised uh, for, um, for 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 being far too aggressive, far too left wing. And so, on, on guns, I don't think there's anything that he could have announced on Tuesday that Marco Rubio and Donald Trump and Ted Cruz uh, and the NRA wouldn't have come out and opposed because for them, it's simply good politics to oppose anything that he's for. So, Senator Murphy, where does this leave Congress? So, you know, Congress is still going to be on the hook. And I think what you're going to hear from the president in his town hall and in his State of the Union is um, uh, is, is is a commitment to continue to put the pressure on Congress. Now, I think it's been made, been made pretty clear by Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell, there's not going to be a successful vote on a background checks bill. But, you know, there are places that we can come together. Uh, one would be mental health legislation that is, you know, big and comprehensive. And we should do that simply because the mental health system is broken. But there will be a positive downward effect on gun violence if you fix some aspect of the mental health system. Um, and then I think there's going to be continued pressure on Republicans to look at this issue of those that are on the terror watch list. I just don't know how Republicans continue to vote against um, uh, stopping people on the terror watch list from getting guns. That's going to be an untenable position to hold going into an election year. Uh, so I think those two issues, you know, are ones that may be able to move over the course of this year. Well, I, to be to be perfectly frank with you, I don't understand why we're talking about the terror watch list. It's, uh, the terror watch list is really flawed. You don't want to craft policy on people who may have gotten incorrectly caught up on the terror watch list, right? Why wouldn't your default be that if you're on that list, you shouldn't be able to immediately buy a weapon? Right? Uh, why shouldn't your Why shouldn't your position be that if you're on that list, even with even with flaws, that you have to have a slightly longer process in order to buy a gun? I mean, I don't I don't deny the fact that people have a, a right to own a firearm, but I don't think they have a right to own a firearm immediately if there's some reason to do some additional due diligence to find out if they uh, if, if there's reason why they shouldn't. Well, I, I might be more inclined to agree if I thought the terror watch list was uh, a more perfect example of a list of people who are legitimately dangerous. Um, but uh, what do you think about the the idea that if maybe these executive orders aren't super efficient, immediately effective reducers of uh, gun violence, uh, what do you think about the argument that President Obama is setting the stage for for future presidents who are interested in this issue 
to build upon. Because, you know, we sometimes, sometimes in Washington, pundits get caught up in the fizzle-fazzle of, of what presidents say in speeches, and they, they sort of declare the, the cause to be lost if President Obama says, I want to do this, and we don't immediately get the most effective law put in place within 48 hours of him wanting to do something. Like, he's failed to bend Congress to his will. Uh, isn't there a case to be made that there is real place and policy for playing a long game? And don't you think that maybe this is part of that? I, I, I do. And I think you, know, you just remember how long it took to pass the Brady handgun bill after the attempted assassination of, of the president and, the, um, and his press secretary being injured as well. That was 10 years. Uh, and so I, I don't know that we want to wait 10 years to get a new background checks bill passed, but I think you do have to have these marks along the way. Um, that show progress, that give reason for advocates and uh, grassroots activists to come back out again. Uh, and I do think that this issue is in a fundamentally different place for all the folks that want to focus on the failure. You know, the fact that the president was unveiling a fairly modest set of reforms of our gun laws to a overflow crowd that was wildly cheering him um, suggests that this is uh, an issue that has moved substantially in three years. The fact that in the Democratic Party today, there really isn't room for individuals who aren't for background checks who, or aren't progressive on gun laws suggests that this issue has, has moved. And so, you know, I think that this is a long arc. The gun lobby isn't going to be easy to beat, but this is an important mark. All right. Well, thank you for joining us, uh, Senator, and we look forward to having you again soon uh, back on, hopefully, to talk about maybe something great that happened. I'm ready. Thanks, guys.
And we're back. Uh, the unemployment rate has been falling across the country. And depending on whether or not the victims of the financial crash have ended up back in competitive jobs with good pay and benefits or have gone to die in an Amazon fulfillment center, that may be a good thing. But as the massiveness of the unemployment crisis has faded, an old stinginess has returned in the form of federal rules governing food stamps that target unemployed adults without children. Somewhere between 500,000 and 1 million Americans this year will soon face the additional hardship of food insecurity, even as that distant light at the end of the tunnel is starting to become visible. Here to talk about it is our friend Arthur Delaney. Hi. And joining us by phone, we have Becky Murphy, who has intimate knowledge of this problem because she is facing the prospect of being caught up in its grip right now. Ms. Murphy, thank you very much for joining us. I'm glad to be available for this. So, Becky Murphy, uh, you had a retail job where you got 20 to 30 hours per month for the past year. So you were also receiving uh, food stamps, which in Wisconsin is called food share, and that helped you buy your groceries every month. Uh, tell us about uh, how, the, how the program helped you. Well, what I really liked about it is that it didn't limit what I was able to purchase. Um, you know, Obviously, I wasn't just going out and buying a lot of junk food or going around and buying steak and lobster, which is what a lot of people think. Um, but it, knowing that I had another source of money for my groceries took one thing, one worry off my mind. Scott Walker, the governor of Wisconsin, last year was like, all right, we got to have people who are receiving food stamps uh, if they're able-bodied adults and they don't have dependents, like children or parents are taken care of, they have to work. And so you were already working, but not the 20 hours per week that this new requirement calls for. Um, so tell us about what, what you heard from the government in December. Well, I got a letter stating that I had to meet the requirements of 80 hours of work and or job search per month, or I would be cut back to three months of food stamps every three years. And the way that was explained to me was it wouldn't necessarily be like January, February, March. It could be January, June, and September. So I have a total of three months of food stamps, but only every three years. And how so apparently I have to starve the rest of the time. Right. <laughs> Just <laughs> So most, most people don't do their food budgeting by trimester. Would it have been arbitrary? Would they have actually said, we'll give it to you in January, September, and December? Would you have been able to say, okay, well, I, I would need it most these three months? I would actually have to sit down and, and look at how often I go to the grocery store and then really think about what I could stockpile things that wouldn't go bad, like packaged rice meals and things that I could that I could keep for a long time to get me through, and then only buy like fresh vegetables or meats or something. So it forced you into kind of like the lifestyle of a doomsday prepper. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah. So, so lots uh, lots of pans and packages. <laughs> Scott Walker, uh, the governor of Wisconsin, a former presidential candidate, has implemented this with gusto, but it's a federal rule that every state has to do. And this year, more than 20 states will be coming on board and very few will uh, be allowed to get out of this requirement for able-bodied 
adults. But one thing that's different about Wisconsin is they do have a program. So they don't just say you either get a job or we're going to forget about you, except for these three months worth of food stamps out of three years. They also offer this uh, food share employment and training in which uh, they, you know, by participating, you can fulfill the requirement and keep your food assistance. So you've been doing that. Can you tell us what it's like? Well, every week I have to meet with a caseworker, which requires driving in um, about 18 miles to the nearest town, and I have to show him my activity report form on which I have to record uh, any time that I spent either actually working for an employer or spending time on the Internet going through Snag a job, Wisconsin Job Center, Indeed, any of the job supplying um, websites, record how long I spent there and also how many jobs that I applied for. You mean and you have to like, get, write down how many minutes you looked at an employer's website? Yeah. Yeah. If I'm, if I'm on Snag a job, for instance, and I spent a half hour on Snag a job looking for jobs available in my area... I'd have to record 30 minutes on Snag a Job, and then I would have to go in, and for each job that I applied for, I'd have to record how long it took me if, if I was filling out an application online, how long that took, or if I'm emailing my resume and a cover letter, I'd have to record that as well. So let me just set the stage a little bit. You do you two currently have part-time work, correct? No, I'm actually unemployed right you're un- now. You're unemployed right now. You Previously, you worked in retail. And, and there was an injury that caused this job with its low hours uh, to go away. Is that right? Right. Yeah. And what was the nature of the injury? I broke my wrist, my right wrist. So you broke your wrist. Your employer at the time deemed that incompatible with being a continued employee, and you were left in your cut, cut loose. Pretty much, yeah. Um, when you're going through these job sites, which which are necessary for you to, you know, record the fact that you've spent X number of hours uh, searching for a job. How productive is that time? Because I remember when I was unemployed, um, I I could have spent hours and hours just applying for every single job out there, including things that I was not, um, you know, pipe fitter jobs that I wasn't, I wasn't, (laughs) I wasn't qualified for. I could have like filled hours and hours of time doing it, but it would have been a joke. I would have I would have said, well, this is dumb. This is just activity. I'm not achieving anything. I also kind of like when I restricted myself to just jobs that I felt I could do, I found like on a daily basis, I was looking at the same jobs again and again and again. How yeah, how exactly. flush are these resources for you? Do you when you're doing this 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 work the state requires you to do, would you say it's time well spent? I don't think so. It's um it, it is another source of finding jobs because the local papers don't have everything that's available uh, because sometimes things come up since they were published uh, or they just have, you know, some people don't want to pay for an ad when they can just go to the site and put up their, their job notices that way. Um, but the one thing that I have noticed, especially with the Job Center of Wisconsin webpage, is some of the jobs... And there was actually a job on there listed from October of 2014. Oops. And I would kind of hope that they filled that one by now. <laughs> <laughs> now, you're, now this is something that Scott Walker said. There's lots and lots of unfilled jobs throughout the state, and employers are begging us to help them 
find candidates for these positions. But you're in Summit Lake, which is, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, a bit of a remote area. Like, how far do you have to go if you were to apply in person for these positions? And, and what kind of stuff are you looking for? Well, the closest town to us of any size is Anigo, which is about 17 miles south of here. So I'm looking at about a half-hour drive just to get into town. Uh, Rhinelander is about 45 minutes north of here, and that's the other larger area, city. So I'm on the road for an hour all told, one way, you know, going either to Anigo or to Rhinelander just to search for a job. Then if I actually find something and apply for it and get an interview, then I have to drive back there again only to find out that I'm not going to be hired. And this is all stuff that you document meticulously on the, the piece of paper they give you. Is that right? Exactly, yeah. So if I am, say, driving to Anigo, I try to do my shopping and my job applica- app applying and everything all at once so that I'm not... so. I, it's not that I'm wasting the time, but it's like I'm getting a whole lot more accomplished than just driving in and driving around and hoping to find somebody who's hiring. But then I have to record when I started my trip, when I ended my trip, how many miles I put on, because I do get compensated for my gas. And the time you've spent driving is credited toward the 20 hours per week requirement. Yes, it is. Oh, well, yep, so it's cool. not like totally insane and punitive it's at all. It's only partially insane and punitive. Uh, <laughs> I mean, because I'm because I'm, I'm listening to you tell the story and I'm just sort of like totting up all the sort of things that are required for you to keep even the minimum amount of, of, of food assistance that you have. You have to have access to the Internet. That's the thing you pay for. You have to have a computer. Presumably at some right. point, if you're... T- if you're in serious discussions with someone who wants to hire you, they will say, where can I email you? So you better have a smartphone or some place where you can easily and rapidly check email to get back to somebody who maybe is going to want to offer a job and has four candidates and is going to give it to the person who replies first. And, of course, there's gas, car, wear and tear on your car. And a lot of these activities, it's it's so weird to me because I think that the whole notion of making people go and search for a job there's a principle behind it that says, oh, we're just trying to keep people honest. But the activity you seem to be engaged in is a joke. It's kind of essentially dishonest. It kind of, it, it's, it's, it's weird because it seems to me that if the principle is like, let's keep people honest and forthright, and then they give them tasks to fulfill that are neither of those things. I, I find it just a little bit demeaning because it, it's almost like we don't trust you to be doing what you say you're doing, so you have to give us proof of it, and then we'll decide if we believe you or not. And I I can understand, on one hand, where they're coming from, because they really don't want people to be abusing the system, staying at home, and not actually searching for a job. But those of us who are actively looking for a job, to have to be on government assistance and then be treated like we're wasting the taxpayer's money is kind of rude. Right. So, uh, you know, counterpoint to Jason, what they're, they're not asking Becky Murphy to do something that she's not already doing by applying for these jobs in, in the surrounding Asking area. her to do it in a really weird way that doesn't always make sense. So yeah. uh, is there something you would rather be doing? Like, is this helping you get ahead? Because you said, you've told me earlier that you had been in retail positions for the past several years. And it seems like part of the problem here is that retail positions are not exactly 
abundant and remunerative where you are. Right, exactly. And you can't really make a living. Even when I was working a part-time job that I was getting more hours per week, I still wasn't making a living. I, you know, I have house payments, I have house repairs, I have car repairs, I have gas, I have all of these things that so I didn't really have any extra fun money unless I could stash a buck or two here and there and save up for four or five months to be able to go to a movie or something. Are you hoping to go to school or do you have a educational ambition? Like, is there, is there anything you're trying to do to get you, uh, in, into a different line of work? Well, tomorrow I'm actually going to be going to the Nicolay area technical college up in Rhinelander to meet with a career counselor just to see what is available out there in in the interests that I have, if there's something that I could be pursuing that I would be better suited for and enjoy more. I don't it, it's very difficult when you hate having to go to your job yeah. to do a good job. So and, and this and this trip to the career counselor is also something that they're sort of nudging you toward and, and say and counting toward your obligatory 20 hours per week. Yes, that would also count for it. One last question. Um, the argument of those who would take you off food assistance now is that um, the threat of losing food assistance would uh, provide you an in- incentive to go get a job. Do you think that this is the first time you've woken up to the to this incentive? I've wanted to get off all of my government assistance programs for the longest time because I, it makes me feel personally that I'm a failure, that I have to rely on other people paying for things just so I can get by. Well, maybe the smelling salts of incentives need to be waved under somebody else's nose at this point. Um, Ms. Murphy, we really thank you for joining us and we wish you the best of luck. And I hope that you'll keep us filled in on how you're doing. Um, and if anyone out there is listening, has a family or friend or loved one, or if you yourself are in these kind of situations economically, drop us an email at so that happened at huffingtonpost.com. Ms. Murphy, best of luck to you. Thank you, Becky. Thank you guys. Hey guys, we'll get back to the program in just a second. I just wanted to take a minute to welcome all of you into my safe space here. To thank all of you for tuning into the show and helping us to create an Inside the Beltway show for Beltway Outsiders and make it a reality. We love hearing from you. Your feedback has been such a tremendously good, positive influence on us every week. Now, you can help other people find out about this show that you're helping to build. If you're an iTunes user, please look for our show. Subscribe if you haven't. And use iTunes' widgets to rate our show and to leave us a comment. It will help people like you find this show. And we can keep building what we've got going together. So head on out to iTunes. Subscribe, rate, and say hello to us and your fellow listeners. Thanks so much, guys. And now, here's something else that happened. Hey guys, we're back. Still with Arthur, still with Zach. So, if you know, the State of the Union address is really like a story that the president tells about the country and how well or how poorly it's doing. 
Uh, he's got a couple of Democratic colleagues. No, I mean, Bernie Sanders, Democratic colleagues, is that fair? He's running for the Democratic nomination. Okay, yeah, so Democratic colleagues, uh, they're out there in the stump right now telling some vastly different stories about the American economy and what to do about it. Uh, and I'm not sure everyone in the Democratic Party is completely in sync with each other, uh, but the differences between Sanders' positions on economic policy and and Clinton's positions on economic policy, which have always threatened to kind of explode into a hot conflict, move closer this week, I'd say? Uh, I, I think we, we've ended up with a very bizarre uh, conflict, which is being waged mostly by the Hillary Clinton campaign um, for reasons that I find politically inexplicable uh, and which factually have been deeply challenged, to put it generously. Uh, right. She is being completely dishonest about her own Wall Street plan, its strength and its merits, uh, vis-a-vis those of Bernie Sanders. Um, and she's enlisted some people with a lot of um, reputational heft, Barney Frank and Gary Gensler, who, for those of you who don't know, is one of the toughest regulators after the crisis, um, to pitch that message and, and I think really undermine their reputations in the process by having them say some things that were just obviously untrue. So this isn't just about... This isn't just about some people who you think are cool agreeing with someone. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of stuff on economic policy where Clinton and Sanders differ in some some marginal way where they both have policies, which the Republican Congress isn't going to let through. Like she wants debt free college. He wants free public public tuition at, right. at public universities. Um, you know, they've they've scuffled over like what the relative merits of these things are. But neither of those policies are going to happen. And they're both a major step in the right direction on Wall Street reform. There is a really significant difference between what Bernie Sanders is proposing and what Hillary Clinton is proposing. Hillary Clinton is proposing more reporting, a few tweaks, enforcing the stuff under Dodd-Frank, being better about prosecutions. Uh, Bernie Sanders is talking about overhauling the structure of the financial system. He wants to break up the banks. He wants to impose hard, clear distinctions on what types of activities get government support and what don't. So risky, crazy things with securities. Um, Hillary Clinton doesn't want to do any of that. She's she's explicit. She's repeatedly avoided endorsing those policies while insisting that her her you know little tweaks here about more reporting on the shadow banking sector that's this, that's going to somehow be stronger than than you know not allowing federal funds to flow into the the, the, the shadow banking. This sector. is kind of of a piece with what divides them in the first place thematically. Bernie Sanders is a revolutionary. Hillary Clinton is an institutionalist. Bernie Sanders wants to throw things out and build them up from the ground, tear things out, root and branch, build them up from the ground again. Clinton says the system mainly works. We just need to tweak the gears here and there. But what is it about this conflict now where you think Clinton has gone completely off the rails? I think it's off the rails for two reasons. One, one is just the political calculation. It doesn't make this is a weak issue for her. She's a weak issue for Bernie Sanders is guns. If she wants to talk, if she wants to hit him, she would just be talking about guns all the time. When she talks about Wall Street, all she does is make people think about an issue where Sanders is really strong. So Bernie Sanders goes out and gives a speech this week saying we should break up the banks. And when I talk about reimposing Glass-Steagall, this 21st century separation between commercial banking and which is just, you know, accepting deposits, giving loans, stuff that we think of as banking and crazy highfalutin securities trading. um, That, you know, shadow banking is the crazy highfalutin securities trading. Okay, that's that's what it is. So when you talk about imposing that separation, you're saying I don't want taxpayer perks flowing to companies that do that. That means you're limiting the amount of cheap, easy money and insured money available to those institutions. And Clinton is claiming at the same time that that Sanders has nothing to do. He's not doing anything about shadow banks when what he's doing is so much stronger on shadow banking. I I have two questions about this. One is, you know, how potent is the issue? 
you know, how, how well do people remember the financial sector's role in, in the Great Recession? And the other is, you know, how dangerous are the banks? How bad a problem is systemic risk of these big institutions, even with Dodd-Frank on the books? I think the, 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 thing, to, the thing to keep in mind about Dodd-Frank, which we'll get into some more next week, is that while it has a lot of really strong elements, it, it only works if regulators decide to implement it as strongly as possible. And thus far, they have largely not done that. So there are some agencies like the new Consumer Financial Protection Bureau that's created. That's done really well. That Those regulators have been really tough. The Fed has not exercised the full extent of its authority. It could break up the banks right now if it wanted to. It has chosen not to do so. And these banks are much larger now than they were during the crisis. And we saw what happened when they failed during the crisis. So It was bad. It was very, very bad. So, I mean, we're talking about banks that are, you know, multi-trillion dollars in size. I believe Lehman Brothers was about $600 billion when it, uh, $639 billion, I think, in assets when it, when it filed for bankruptcy. So we have really serious problems um, that that are that that the banks pose to the, to the sec to, to to the broader economy if they get into trouble. And the way finance works, banks eventually get in trouble. We don't know if it's going to happen this year or in seven years or in seventeen years. But there's going to be another financial crisis, and when that happens, banks that are much larger and more dangerous than they are, than they were ten years ago uh, are going to be at the epicenter. Yeah, but I thought Dodd Frank gives them all a living will so that they're the, the there's a more orderly process of them collapsing and you know breaking their fall on various things. That's right. And what's interesting about the Glass-Steagall proposal is it basically says you can't do all the things that make it necessary for you to need a living will because your your operations are so complex you've got to come up with this this resolution plan and banks frankly I mean the regulators have not signed off on the living wills that that banks have have submitted. They there is there has been no approval that the that these banks have an orderly plan to actually shut themselves down in a crisis. I'll interject here briefly by saying that that Clinton has proposed this plan with regard to uh, potential future bank catastrophes uh, in which banks would pay a risk fee uh, on a regular basis to guard against the collapse. The problem I've had with that throughout is that what we really need is for these banks to become properly capitalized against loss. The risk fee, I think, is kind of a way in which banks can assume, hey, we're, we've been making regular payments to guard against our own demise. Let's start taking some more risks. It really kind of like reinforces the too big to failness of the banks. But I, I think I, it's, it's a question of, of priorities there. I mean, capitalization is the big deal. And, and to be clear, Hillary Clinton has said a lot of vague and good stuff about things like capitalization. But again, so long as we're playing this game, well, we're doing things that you need to have legislation imposed for, like more capitalization at the banks. You know, just saying that you want to do it doesn't doesn't matter a whole lot. And breaking up the banks, oddly, is one of the areas where a president could actually do stuff without additional legislative authority. Let's drill back on the 2016-ness of this, though, yeah. because I've, I get the sense that w- w- besides the fact that uh, besides the fact that these plans differ and that uh, her plan is less good than Bernie Sanders plan or not, a, not as effective. Um, certainly, I agree that coming short of something like Glass-Steagall is like a little bit ineffective. Um, it sounds to me like you don't particularly you don't understand the intensity by which she's fighting the issue, given her relative position in the race, and you certainly don't understand why there's this injection of dishonesty. So, just these things are not necessary is, for her campaign. Right, right she now. is up double digits in in Iowa. 
She's very close in New Hampshire. She's very close in New Hampshire. Which is the only state where Bernie Sanders has a lead right now. Right. And the rest of the states, she basically walks. And of course, in national polls, she leads by an ungodly amount of, of, of percentage points. So she doesn't have to make hot war on Bernie Sanders on an issue in which he's which he's really weak and he's really strong. Right. It doesn't make sense. Look, the Democratic Party base agrees with Bernie Sanders on this. And essentially, the Clinton campaign is trying to convince the Democratic Party base that they're actually all a little confused and she's tougher. Um, it's an issue where she's just not that great and she's winning anyway. So just leave it alone. There's nothing to be there's nothing for her campaign to gain from going out and talking this stuff up. It just makes them look dishonest. And it makes Bernie Sanders look like he's the guy who actually supports liberal things that liberals like. And she is still in a primary election, right? She still wants liberals to like her for the next three or four months. That's that's still something she's got to to at least pretend to care about for a while. And it's this is part of a broader theme with her. Before it becomes, where are you going to go, liberals? Right, exactly. Right. And, and this is part of a broader weird theme with her, her uh, you know, offensive maneuvers against Sanders. You know, during the debate... She the most recent Democratic Party debate, she cited these totally bogus Wall Street Journal editorial numbers about how much it would cost for, uh, you know, for for universal health care, for, for a, you know, Medicare for all single single payer type system. They're just totally nonsensical numbers. It's the type of attack that you use because you know that like rhetorically in the debate for the short period of time, that's that you, know, you can get a zinger in. But long term, you're just signaling to the Democratic Party base that you don't actually really like the single payer health care thing that, they, that they're into. And also you think that stuff that Democrats like is too expensive and you don't want to pay for it. But is that fair? I mean, I do think, look, I think that I think that on, on the level of like she said some weird and dispiriting and discouraging and dishonest thing, that's definitely true that we, we, we've, we've all sat here and, and criticized her for that fucked up, oh, I did it for 9-11 nonsense that she... She also took out a one debate and then kept saying over and over again. But I think that her case is not if her case is that I am going to be hopefully a Democratic president. I am going to be realistically facing Republican House and Republican Senate. So I can't bring you single pair even if I even if we all wanted to. That's the case. I can't bring you earth-shattering shaping liberal policies. We will have to move in increments. We will have to be sort of timid in our approach to policy making. But I have worked with Republicans before. She has. She's a good record of bipartisan work in the Senate. She's got she went right after people that that disliked her the most and was like, "Let's work together." Uh, and she proved herself to be a decent institutionalist working within an institution in which liberals didn't have advantages at the time. Her, her, She's saying, I'm the person for this moment right now. Bernie Sanders is promising you the world that he will not be able to deliver upon. That would be that would be a smart tactic. But instead, the, the strategy that she is pursuing is just take down Bernie Sanders with any rhetorical fuel you can possibly find. Get him. And that does not seem to be a smart long term strategy, particularly given that there are a lot of people who are really enthusiastic about Bernie Sanders right now who are going to be totally happy to vote for Hillary Clinton in in the fall. If she goes around just completely tearing down his campaign with dishonest attacks, that's going to that's going to have an effect on turnout. That's it, it is it is a pointless blow to her November chances um, to be going after Sanders in, in this particularly dishonest. Some of way. this stuff seems obscure for some voters, though. I think that's true. But but the Democratic in the Democratic Party, Wall Street is one of the was one of the most important issues. Remember, one of the most important and popular figures in the Democratic Party is Elizabeth Warren. And she is 
she basically only has one issue that people that people listen to her for, and she's popular because that issue resonates so much yeah. with the Democrats. So Hillary race. Clinton is poking the bear unnecessarily. Right. And, and I'll say this. I'll say this. Um, it it matters in the sense that at some point Hillary Clinton's got to open up a national ground game. And the quality of the people she gets to run that, to actually go door to door and convince people to vote for her, is going to be largely dependent on how enthusiastic she can make highly politically engaged people. So it may be you – know, Glass-Steagall may be obscure to 80 percent of the electorate that Hillary Clinton is courting. But to the 20 percent of the electorate that she'll mobilize to bring that 80 percent back on her side – uh, it's, it's a, it's a, it, they're, they are engaged with that issue. And yeah, they, they don't want to be told that, you know, well, all you people who like single payer healthcare are idiots, you know, <laughs> that just means there won't be as big a uh, liberal army backing her up in states like Florida, Virginia, Ohio, uh, where, where, where they need politically engaged people who can relate to ordinary people. To, like, run this campaign for Well, imagine how much worse it would be if there were a real Democratic primary (laughs) with, like, (laughs) debates and stuff. (laughs) Martin O'Malley is trying his best, I'll have you know. So that's what happened this week. This podcast was produced, edited, and engineered by Adriana Ucero, with technical assistance from Peter James Callahan and Christine Canetta, and spiritual guidance from Caitlin Boguki. She looks like Eve Marie Saint and on the waterfront. I'm Jason Lincolns. This week we were joined by Connecticut Senator Chris Murphy and Wisconsin resident Becky Murphy. There's no relation, but they're both pretty cool. And we were also joined by Huffington Post reporters Zach Carter and Arthur Delaney. So That Happened is available on iTunes at iTunes.com slash So That Happened. Please check out the whole family of Huffington Post podcasts in the iTunes store while you're there. This week, in fact, our pals Emma Gray and Claire Fallon return for a second season of Here to Make Friends, a Bachelor recap show with wine and side-eye. Subscribe and tell everyone you know about it. If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, please send an email to so that happened at HuffingtonPost.com. Thanks to all of you for listening. We miss you already.